You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome, welcome, and season's greetings to you one and all. Welcome along to the Attaboy Clarence Christmas Special. There's a festive dive into the question pot coming. Reviews of two very different Yuletide movies. Can't wait to see what you think of those. Some radio stars incoming, and of course, Christmas music and kicking us off. Old King Cole himself. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir. And folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe help to make the season bright. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight. They know that Santa's on his way He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh And every mother's child is gonna spy To see if reindeer really know how to fly And so I'm offering this simple phrase Kids from one to ninety-two Although it's been said Many times, many ways Merry Christmas to Although it's been said Many times, many ways Merry Christmas To you I'd like to say to all of you Everywhere 
that I hope you have a most happy, pleasant, and beautiful Christmas. Lovely. Now it feels as though Christmas is truly on the way. How's about a festive dive into the old question pot? Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. First question here is from Katie, who says, I've just watched Pimpernel Smith and have decided I need to go on a deep dive into the films and life of Leslie Howard. Do you have a favorite movie of his? And can you recommend a book or two on his life and work? Thank you for your podcasts and movie library. All the best, Katie. I'm so glad you're enjoying them, Katie, and thank you. Movies. I love Pimpernel Smith myself. I also love Intermezzo and his original version of Pygmalion with Wendy Hiller is fantastic too. Such an appealing star, isn't he? So unlikely when you put him next to the stars of the day. But there he was, bursting with talent and class. Oh, and also check out The Scarlet Pimpernel with Merle Oberon. The ending of that film is so well done. I actually cried the first time I saw it. As for biographies, I've just checked my library and found only one there. It's called the Lost Actor by Estelle Efforgan, and I remember it being pretty good. I don't think anyone's known for having written the definitive biography on him yet, and his early death, of course, is still shrouded in much mystery due to the government's needing to keep certain facts hush-hush. If anyone else knows of any other good book on him, do let me know and I'll pass it along to Katie. For now, though, Katie, do have a Pimpernel-flavoured Canterbury. They seek him here. They seek him there. Those trenches seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? That damned ellipsis. Canterbury. Mm, not bad. Not bad. It's damn good. Another message here from Nicole Trollio, who asks, What's your favorite Hollywood animal featured in classic movies? Good question. I am a bit of a Jimmy the Raven fan. He popped up in most of Frank Capra's movies, including It's a Wonderful Life, You Can't Take It With You, and Arsenic and Old Lace. 600 screen credits in total. But I will say that the moment this question arrived, my mind instantly flew to Skippy the Dog, most famous, of course, for playing Asta in the Thin Man films. But he also played George in Bringing Up Baby and Mr. Smith in The Awful Truth. He must have been great pals with Cary Grant. But what's your favorite animal of old Hollywood? Rin Tin Tin? Leo the Lion, Jigs the Chimpanzee who played Cheetah, let me know. And Nicole, have a Yuletide Canterbury. For yourself and your family, a very happy Christmas. Canterbury. And remember, if you have a question, simply go to attaboyclarence.com, scroll down the homepage, and toss the blighter into the question pot. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinking cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. Car owners, have you ever heard of K-Site Smooth Seal? Why, no. Why, no. I have. Is it new? What's it do? Well, this is off the record. Just between us boys, your automatic transmission, does it ever make a noise? This is the worst barbershop quartet rehearsal in history. You mean a little kind of grinding? Does that little chatter matter? I hear a very weird whir sometimes. It doesn't sound good, boys, but let's be sure. When you're sitting at the light and it goes to green, you put your foot down hard. Have you ever felt a sort of a jerk? Many times. A kind of a jar? Or heaven help you, a real thud bump? Oh, I've felt uh, it. Oh, me too. I've had it, stranger. What do we do? Well, don't buy a horse and don't trade your car. Just get yourself some new K-Site Smooth Seal. New K-Site Smooth Seal? New Snake Eyed Glue Deal? New K-Site Smooth Seal? New K-Site Smooth Seal? Playwright? 
Bart's youth wheel? How will that help? Why, it's made to soften those shrunken seals, which are apt to leak when there's power on the wheels. It stops those thud bumps, jerks, and jars that are apt to creep into these modern cars. Why, this K-Site smooth seal in one application can pack them all off on a long vacation, and it's less than $2 at your service station. Yes, thank you for that poetic presentation. Oh, I'm so disappointed with myself. Tell you what, let's whiz into the holiday mood now with a visit to a very special place. For our first visit to Radioland this Yuletide, we're in the company of Mr. Christmas himself, Bing Crosby, for the Screen Guild Theatre's lovely half-hour adaptation of Bing's seasonal cinematic favourite, Holiday Inn, in which he stars alongside the ever-wonderful Dinah Shaw. Take it away! Lady Astor presents the Screen Guild Players. The Screen Guild play tonight, Holiday Inn. The starring players, this is Bing Crosby. And this is Dinah Shore. Tonight, Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in musical highlights from Paramount Pictures' tuneful film, Holiday Inn, starring Bing Crosby as Jim Hardy and Diana Shore as Linda Mason. This is the story of Jim Hardy, a man with an idea. Oh, pardon me, Brother Bradley. A man with three ideas. Three? Yep. The first one came to me when Lila Dixon and Ted Hanover and myself, we were doing a song and dance act in a New York nightclub. Uh-huh. I had an idea that I would marry Lila, quit show business, and settle down on a farm in Connecticut. Well, sounds great. How'd the idea work out? Didn't work. Just when I felt sorry for Ted because Lila was marrying me and... We'd leave him looking for two new partners. Ted gave Lila a quick fireside chat. Mm-hmm. He sold her on staying in the act with him, and when I walked out to go to the farm, I walked out alone. I've had better ideas, I think. Idea. Well, uh, tell me, Jim, what was the next idea? Holiday Inn. See, it didn't take me too long to learn that a farm was no place for a lazy boy. So I decided to change the farmhouse into a roadside nightclub, open on holidays only and featuring shows built around each particular holiday. I even had a show planned for uh, Hitler's funeral. Huh? Yeah. Uh, What made you think Hitler would be buried on a holiday? Oh, brother, any day he's buried will be a holiday. (laughs) I wrote special songs for all the holidays, and then I began looking for some talent. I see. I was planning to open on Christmas Eve, but the game was called off on account of no one showing up. Not even performers. Boy, I was really feeling feeling sorry for myself on Christmas Day. And then Santa Claus brought me Linda Mason. And when I saw Linda, well, I began to get another idea. See, I can still remember the first day when when she came up to the farm and she asked me for a job. Could you use me in your show, Mr. Hardy? Well, I don't know. I might find a spot for you somewhere. What can you do? Oh, I'd dance a little and sing. 
Gee, I couldn't guarantee any salary at first. Right now, I've got the ledger in an iron lung. Oh, I don't care if you pay me off in eggs. Pay off in eggs? Lady, you've either got me mixed up with Bob Hope or some millionaire. <laughs> Please give me a chance. Well, well, see what you can do here. Uh, you know, this uh, sort of gives me a chance to keep a little promise I made to myself. I swore I was going to sing this song here at the inn tonight. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen Sleigh bells in the snow I'm dreaming of a quiet Christmas With every Christmas card I write May your days be merry and bright and may all your Christmas be white. Go ahead, I'll pitch you the word. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Just like the ones I used to know. Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten Where the treetops glisten And children listen And children listen To hear sleigh bells in the snow Thanks a lot, Mr. Hardy. I want to tell you, though, there's a, there's a string tied to it. Oh, I was afraid it was too good to be true. Yep. From now on, you've got to start calling me Jim. Well, between this here and that there, Brother B, I want to tell you, Linda and I managed to talk enough musicians and entertainers into taking a chance with us to... Let us open Holiday Inn on New Year's Eve. Mm. Ah, the joint was packed. I was standing in the corner, pounding myself on the back for having hit the jackpot when the lights went off again all over the world. Just to give everything a nice, ironic touch, Linda was singing Happy Holiday. 
when trouble staggered in. Happy holidays! Happy holidays! While the merry bells keep ringing, may your every wish come true. Happy holidays! Happy holidays! May the calendar keep ringing, happy holidays to you. burdened down with trouble if your nerves are wearing thin pack your load down the road and come to holiday inn if the traffic noise affects you like a squeaky violin kick your cares down the stairs come on to holiday inn if you can't find someone who will set your heart aware take your car and motor to the home of boy meets girl If you're laid up with a breakdown Throw away your vitamin Don't get worse Just get your hold of your nurse And come to Holiday Inn Happy Holiday Happy Holiday May the calendar keep ringing Happy Holidays to Oh, I want to tell you, Brother B, that gal could really sing the socks off. Yes, indeed. Well, no one's going to argue with you about that, Jim, but, uh, well, if I'm not being too obtrusive, let's get back to the trouble you said staggered into Holiday Inn. Oh, yes, the trouble. Yes, the trouble. The trouble. Well, it was my former partner and throat cutter, Dick Ted Hanover. Uh -huh. <laughs> Ted staggered in with a compound alcoholic fracture. <laughs> this boy was loaded. There was nothing wrong with his propensity for grabbing my girls. He walked right over to Linda and began dancing with her, and just watching them dance together, I had a hunch that my days with Linda were numbered. The next morning, though, when I went into the room where I had put Ted to sort of sleep it off, I began to think I had a chance to, uh... Good morning, Ted. Got a little head, huh? Oh. Say, where... where am I? You're in Holiday Inn. Well, how'd I get here? Who brought me? Haven't you heard about the stork? This is no time for your alleged comedy. Lila left me. What? Yeah, I got a wire from her at the theater telling me she was quitting me. Going to marry some Texas millionaire or something. Uh-oh. Uh, then I had a drink. A drink? Brother, you couldn't hit the floor with a handful of hominy. <laughs> Say, uh, I seem to remember dancing with some girl after I got here last night. Girl? Girl? Yeah, yeah. I'm beginning to remember a few things. Gee, she was a perfect partner for me. Now that Lila's left me, I have to get a new partner, and that girl, she's just the girl for me. Oh, no, Ted. I think you're, you're much better off doing a single. You're huh? a born soloist, you know, old boy. Oh, no, 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 Jim, no, sir. I've got to get that girl for a partner. Gee, if I could only remember what she looked like. You don't remember? No, no, I... Say, wait a minute. You saw her. Me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, describe her. Oh, well, uh... I wasn't watching very closely, you know. She was, uh, oh, I would say she was a medium, medium-built sort of a girl with a medium face. She had a, she had a nice evening gown on with a, with a sort of a Balmacan back. You're a great help, you are. Thanks a lot. Oh, it's really nothing at all. Happy to do it for you. Uh, just the same, I got a hunch. I'm going to find that girl, and believe me, she's worth waiting for. Hmm, well, where are you going to find her? Uh, right here. 
I have a hunch you'll be back here for the next holiday. How do you like that for a guy moving in on me, Brother B? Well, Jim, couldn't you have told him she was your girl and asked him to keep away from her? Oh, you can't be that naive. True, old boy. Don't you remember Lila? Oh, Ted I... made a habit of stealing my girls away from mm. me. My only chance to hang on to Linda was to keep her out of Ted's sight until I had enough cabbage in the bank to ask her to marry me. And for the next holiday, Lincoln's birthday, I decided that Linda and I, we're going to work in Blackface to keep Ted from discovering her. Well, she wasn't too happy either when I... Broke the idea to her about it. Oh, Jim, I look terrible in that stuff. No, you won't. I don't even know how to put it on. I'll put it on for you. I'm an old boot black, you know. <laughs> well, let's see. Here we go now. Oh, for a month and a half, I've been dreaming about how pretty I was going to look tonight. Well, you'll have plenty of times to be pretty. Say, you know, I was just going to ask you if you'd like to be in the rest of the shows out here. You were? Will you? Will I? I just wish I didn't have to work in that florist shop all the other days in the year to make these few possible. Well, maybe a little later on when we start doing better, we... Well, you can stay out here all the time. Did you hear what you just said? I just caught the last part of it there. <laughs> Was it a proposal? Well, it sure will be when I get a few bucks in the bank. Gosh, you're a strange duck. You don't even give me a chance to say darling and throw my arms around you. Well, you'd better wait until you see my bank book. Well, I guess I'm sort of engaged. Yes, and I guess we'd better sort of start the show, too. Come on, we can't just uh, sing here in the dressing room. On a February morn, a tiny baby boy was born. Abraham, Abraham. When he grew up, this tiny babe, the folks all called him honest Abe. In 1860, he became the 16th president. And now he's in the Hall of Fame, a most respected gem. And that is why we celebrate this blessed February day. Abraham, Abraham. USA's United Banks. One whose name was Nancy Hanks Abraham, Abraham She gave this land its finest son Who ever went to Washington Abraham, Abraham When somebody told him General Grant Was drinking every night He answered, go see if you can Get all my generals tied That's why Just a moment with the second half of our musical highlight from Holiday Inn. But first, a word from our hostess, Lady Esther. I've received so many letters lately from women living in Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Chicago, and other cities where there are numerous defense plants and where the air is filled with smoke and flying dust. They tell me what a problem it is to keep their skin really clean these days. 
and many of them tell me they began to notice their skin getting dull and muddy looking. They began to notice blemishes here and there. But what a difference, they tell me, since they began using Lady Esther for-purpose face cream. Many of them tell me their skin never looked cleaner and fresher, never looked smoother. Now, I wish I could read you these hundreds of enthusiastic letters because they prove that Lady Esther for-purpose face cream does far more for your skin than just an ordinary cleansing cream. But I want to do more than that. I want to send you a generous tube of Lady Esther for-purpose face cream free so that you can try it on your own skin and see the thrilling results for yourself. After all, what better proof can there be than to see a thing with your own eyes? If your skin is taking a lot of extra punishment these days, especially if it's being exposed more than usual and getting a little dry and rough, a little muddy-looking, you'll want to take advantage of my offer. I'll send you enough cream for a whole week's trial, and you can see for yourself how Lady Esther Four Purpose Face Cream not only thoroughly cleans your skin, but softens it, helps nature refine the pores, and even leaves a smooth, flattering base for powder. Just send me your name and address on the back of a penny postcard. By return mail, you'll receive your gift tube of Lady Esther Four Purpose Face Cream and the nine different shades of Lady Esther Face Powder. All the address you need is Lady Esther, Chicago. Now we raise the curtain again on Holiday Inn, starring Dinah Shore as Linda Mason and Bing Crosby as Jim Hardy. Uh, go on to the story of Holiday Inn, Jim. Tell me, uh, did the blackface disguise keep Ted from discovering Linda? Yeah, but uh, he came back like gangbusters. He promised <laughs> to come uh, two days later for Valentine's Day, and even I couldn't figure out a legitimate excuse for, for putting Linda in blackface on Valentine's Day. Uh-huh. So I decided to take Cupid right by the bowstrings and set myself solid with Linda. I had a special song all whipped up for her when she came back for rehearsal. I called it, uh, Be Careful, It's My Heart. I wasn't kidding either. Be careful, it's my heart. It's not my watch. You're holding, it's my heart It's not the note I sent you That you quickly burned It's not the book I lent you That you never returned Remember, it's my heart The heart with which so willingly I part It's yours to take, to keep or break But please, before you start Be careful It's my heart Well, uh, 
Jim, from where I'm standing, that certainly should have set you in pretty solid with Linda. Well, I thought it was pretty beamy, you know, nice low-key and everything, but yeah. nothing happened. While I was singing, <laughs> Ted finally found Linda, and he moved right in. Back in. Oh, he moved in with a crash. He set himself up in business at Holiday Inn, dancing with uh, Linda, you know, on the holiday shows, yeah. and dividing the rest of his time between making love to her and trying to sell her on leaving me in Holiday Inn to head for the big time as his dancing partner. Mm. Now, I managed to... Come out of my corner punch, you know. I was swinging, swinging right from China. And on Easter Sunday, I was sure I had Ted on the run when Linda joined me in the, the big Easter parade. In your Easter bonnet With all the frills upon it You'll be the grandest lady In the Easter parade should have eliminated Hanover, huh? Well, I thought he'd take a fast count, but Ted promoted a couple of Hollywood talent scouts to come out to the inn. A couple of boys from Hollywood and signed Linda and himself up. Uh, they got a picture contract, yep. huh? That's what they did in a little epic titled Holiday Inn. Now, wait. You mean they stole your idea and made it into a picture? Well, no. When Ted stole my girl, I gave him the idea for the picture. And that was the end of everything, huh? Practically. I closed up Holiday Inn after Ted and Linda left, and I just sat around feeling sorry for myself. On Thanksgiving Day, I read in the gossip columns that they were going to be married as soon as they finished the picture. Well, then I was really ready for the river. And then Mamie, my housekeeper, she took me in hand and gave me sort of a chalk talk on chickadees and their chicaneries. Closing up the inn and setting around like a jellyfish. Just cause a slicker stole your gal and you ain't got fight enough to get her back. Well, I tried to keep her here, Mamie. What kind of keeping was that? Nothing but tricks. If you hadn't made Miss Linda mad, hiring that driver to keep her away from the end the night them Hollywood scouts was here, and then acting like she couldn't be trusted to stay with you in the face of temptation, she'd still be here. Why, right now, if you went to Hollywood and told Miss Linda how much you love her and misses her, that is, if you told her the way a lady likes to hear it, huh, I'll bet you she'd be the quickest ex-movie star that ever exed. <laughs> well, just, just what do you have in mind? Grab yourself a handful of train and get on out to Hollywood. Well, and then what? See, after all, I can't just walk up to a girl I'm in love with and I haven't seen her in several months and say, uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume, or something. Well, now, see here, Mr. Jim. I can tell you to get out to Hollywood and I can also advise you to take Miss Linda in your arms and crush her. But after that, Mr. Jim, you got to put the pressure on yourself. Well, 
Well, did you take Mamie's advice, Jim? Well, I had nothing to lose, Brad. I, I walked onto the lot where they were making the movie version of Holiday Inn. Just as they were about to shoot the last scene of the picture. Mm. I want to tell you, it gave me something of a start. Because that movie set looked exactly like my Connecticut farmhouse. The artificial snow coming down from above, it really took me back to that Christmas day when Linda showed up at Holiday Inn looking for a job. And then Linda began singing White Christmas, and I mustered up enough nerve to walk right into the scene. When it was all over, Ted Hanover was looking for a new partner, and Linda and I were off to see a man about a license. That was Bing Crosby and Dinah Shaw in the Screen Guild Theatre's production of Holiday Inn to get your toe a tapping. On to some movies then. Now, my personal number of Christmases in the world so far numbers in the 40s. And over the years, I've taken various Christmas movies to heart. Of course, It's a Wonderful Life looms large on the old list. Miracle on 34th Street is up there. Remember the Night, The Bishop's Wife, The Shop Around the Corner. All fine examples of stories lit by the yuletide glow. You know what, though? Occasionally, I do mean occasionally... I want something with a little more bite to it. And when that feeling begins to stir within me, I always reach for one of the most undersung holiday movies from the Golden Age, one that positively radiates with the presence of awful people who all learn their very own Christmas lesson. It's as if Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was a Christmas movie. Have I sold you on this yet? Not many people have seen this one, so it's a bit of a curio. This is 1945's The Cheaters. And here's a clip. We were speaking of bringing a needy person into the house at Christmas. Oh. And I want... Well, to tell you the truth, I have to have one. I told Mrs. Bates we've always done it. 
With Stephen coming... Of all the foul ideas, you promised me a party with the entire upper floor and only my friends. How can I have them with some smelly charity case in the house? They don't necessarily have to smell. Good old Eugene Pallet plays J.C. Pigeon, the wealthy head of the affluent Pigeon family, who are all gathering together at the family's New York home for Christmas. But there's a hitch. What J.C. isn't telling his spendthrift family is that he's facing bankruptcy. His business has been in the doldrums all the year long and the process servers are banging on the door. However, a glimmer of hope arrives with news from his son who's out visiting with a rich uncle. That very uncle is on his deathbed and he's leaving behind him a fortune of five million dollars. Enough to put the pigeons right back on top. This is one thing, the rest of it doesn't matter. No, no, it's, uh, it's Uncle Henry we have to think about. Yeah, yeah the poor old fellow. That's too bad. Still, he is getting on. I mean, it's, uh, been failing for years. Exactly, yes. Isn't nearly fast enough at the rate you've been going. She's right. No need of being hypocritical about it, Of course not. No. Uncle Henry would have been the last one to expect it. He was... Is? He is a tough old bird. Of course he is, yeah. I don't think I'm being too callous when I think of what Clara and the girls and Reggie could do with that money. I shouldn't think so. No. Well, they're young enough to enjoy it. Oh, exactly, yeah. I could use some of it, too. Of course. Build up the firm. Build it up, yes. Yeah, money makes money. Wow, money makes, yes. Back at home, J.C.'s daughter, Therese, played by Ruth Terry, has managed to convince the family that what the household needs is a display of kindness. She persuades them to take in a charity case in order to top up their karma. And they select at random a washed-up actor who's hit the skids, Anthony Marchand, played by Joseph Schilkraut, a former matinee idol. But the thing is, Marchand's a very big fan of the bottle these days. You know, this organization was just about to drop you from its roles. I think you're very, very fortunate, Mr. Marchand. And I hope that this time you will behave with a proper amount of gratitude. Gratitude in most men is usually a secret desire to receive greater benefits. The terms of their uncle's will is soon made clear. He hasn't left the family a penny. He's left it all to a showgirl he met some years ago, one Florrie Watson, played by Ona Munson, who's down on her luck herself. But J.C. has a plan that'll stop Florrie from inheriting. Who was it said every man has his price? Never mind who said that. What did Trainer say? He's going to play ball. He has to advertise, but he's not going to make the will public. Simply insert notices in the papers without saying why the Watson girl is wanted. And he's agreed to limit the search to one week. If she's not discovered in that time, we get the money. Also, he slipped me a tip. What? Uncle Henry corresponded with the girl after the show moved on. She was so young, she could hardly write. Just sent him silly little kid drawings of funny mans and stuff. I remember when you used to do that, dear. It was so sweet. Oh, mother. Yes, mother. What's the tip? I'm getting to that. The parents always added postscripts to the letters and from certain references made to New York. The lawyer feels that if the girl is found, it'll be here instead of out there. Well, what good does that do? I propose to find her first. Dad, we don't want her found. We don't want her to find out about Uncle Henry, which is something quite different. In order to pull off this dastardly plan and cheat Florrie out of her fortune, he'll require the help of an actor, and it just so happens that there's a slightly inebriated one in the house. Having learned her first name, you need only consult the files of Actors' Equity, and if she's still connected to the theatre, 
they would have her address. I would be very happy to undertake this little mission for you, if you wish. Who is this guy? A guest. You said something about a charity case? I am the charity case, young man. It may well sound as though I've given away the entire plot. This setup all takes place in the first 20 minutes of the film. And what follows is a delightfully caustic little Christmas miracle, in which a family of money-grabbing ne'er-do-wells essentially kidnap a hapless actress and keep her out of sight over the holiday with the help of a drunk actor so that they can inherit a fortune. The problem is, of course, that way down deep inside, they might not be as terrible as they need to be in order to carry out such a plot. This was originally dreamed up as a vehicle for John Barrymore and Carol Lombard, and you can certainly see the screwball roots of the thing. This would have been a fantastic partner piece to 20th century. But after their untimely deaths in 1942, Paramount kind of kicked it around for a while, but then fell out of love with it and sold it on to Republic Pictures, who were Poverty Row, but kind of the prestige place in Poverty Row. To their eternal credit, they seem to have bet the house on the project. You'd never know that this was made at Poverty Road. The sets are resplendent, no cost is spared, and the cast includes Shilkraut and Eugene Pallette, Ona Munson, Ruth Terry, and Billy Burke is also here to play a ditzy, high-pitched spendthrift. Usually, these sorts of characters are the antagonists that the do-gooding heroes are pitted against, especially in this branch of society. In this film, you're riding alongside the villains of the piece, and the lovely thing about it is watching them all thaw out and find their humanity as the parable goes on. Everyone's wonderful, but Joseph Schilkraut, who you'll most likely know as the scheming Vadash from the shop around the corner, is particularly delightful as the hammy actor who keeps swiping drinks for medicinal purposes and who keeps the entire plot on its toes. He's the closest thing you can get to a Christmas leprechaun. I would have loved to have seen what John Barrymore did with the role, but Schilkraut is a very good substitute. Rare to find a Christmas story that wears its heart so squarely in its pocketbook as this one. Perhaps that's why it's been so ignored across the years. It has a definite mean streak to it, but that's kind of what makes it so refreshing too. That's The Cheetahs from 1945. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow Man, it doesn't show signs of stopping And I brought me some corn for popping The lights are turned way down low Let it snow, let it snow When we finally kiss goodnight How I'll hate going out in the storm but if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm And the fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbye But as long as you'd love me so Let it snow, let it snow and snow Finally kiss goodnight How I'll hate going out in the storm 
But if you really grab me tight All the way home I'll be warm Oh, the fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbye But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow Dean Martin there with Let It Snow, times three. And for my next trick, another Christmas tale, but one that definitely strays from the usual formula. In fact, it's a full-on film noir murder mystery from the pen of none other than Cornell Woolrich, the man who gave us the likes of The Leopard Man and Phantom Lady and Night Has a Thousand Eyes and Rear Window. So we're in excellent hands. Don Castle, Elise Knox and Regis Toomey star in 1948's I wouldn't be in your shoes. How did I get here? Still seems like a dream. It'll take me to the chair in a little while, but that'll be no dream. I guess it started that night I was waiting for Ann. I remember it was a hot July night in New York, and she was late. I always got the heebie-jeebies when she was late. I thought of all those creeps that took dancing lessons from her, ballroom dancing and rumba. But the dancing school was closed by now, and she still wasn't home. Turned on the phonograph. Anything to get my mind off the fact that Anne wasn't home. But that wasn't any good. Nothing was. Tom and Anne Quinn are a pair of vaudeville dancers who are down on their luck, eking out a living through Anne's part-time job as a dime-a-dance girl. One night, and I'm not making this up, some cats outside their apartment window just won't stop making noise, so Tom picks up the only things he has to hand, his dancing shoes, and hurls them out to try and shut the animals up. What'd you do, throw your shoes out? That's just that old worn-out pair. No, they weren't. I got rid of those yesterday. You've thrown out your one and only pair of shoes. I'll get them in the morning. You'll get them right now before a janitor or somebody picks them up. What are you going to do, walk around New York barefooted? Used to call them my magic shoes with those built-in taps. <laughs> Can't even hit cats with them. Well, when I get down there, I'm going to strangle both those cats with my bare hands. The following morning, Tom's shoes have mysteriously reappeared outside of their apartment door. Who brought them back? But wait, there's more good luck. Tom's found a wallet on the street containing $2,000. It's all coming up roses for the Quins. That is, until their neighbor, Mr. Wantner, is found murdered. Someone's killed the old man and stolen his money, and what's more, the vital clue at the crime scene seems to be an imprint belonging to Tom's dancing shoes. His shoes were at the scene of the crime, and suddenly he's got $2,000. Suspicious much? Just tell us what you did with the rest of the money. It'll make it easier for you. What money? I don't know what you're talking about. Look, Quinn, old man Wantner had a lot more than this. Where are you hiding it? Who's Wantner? Who's Wantner, eh? If you don't know who Wagner is, why did you buy a copy of every single New York newspaper three nights running so you could follow the developments of the case? I do remember something about it, just a few paragraphs on the second or third page of the paper. Didn't say anything about money and old-fashioned bills. No, you bet your life it didn't, because if it had, you wouldn't have spent the money. And we wanted you to. We don't tell the papers everything, Quinn. Not when we've got a trap set up. And you walked right into the trap, Quinn, just like we figured you would. Gwen, why don't you sign this confession like a good boy? It'll make it easier for you all the way around. Look, I've been telling I didn't kill anybody. All right, so you didn't kill him. So he ran into a clothesline and strangled himself. Tom is convicted of the crime and sentenced to death that very Christmas. 
but Anne is determined to clear him and prove his innocence. In order to do so, she'll have to call in a favor from one of her dance hall admirers, Inspector Judd, played by Regis Toomey. Why did you phone me tonight and ask me to come to this place on Christmas Eve? What do you expect to find in this house? I don't know, but I do know we've got to help him, and I had to start somewhere. This is again a Poverty Row production, this time from Monogram, and while the production values aren't quite up there with the cheaters from Republic, the plot itself is more than compensation. This is a cunning little tale, with a hot streak of twists and turns that keep you guessing until the very end as to where it's going. We start the story off with Tom on Death Row, narrating his tale of woe to us. And the device works marvelously because as we see him being sucked into jail by all the circumstantial evidence, we're left wondering, A, if he might actually be guilty, and B, how on earth he's gonna get himself out of it if he's not. The genius stroke is that this goes very swiftly from being a tough guy picture to a tough girl picture. Because while Don Castle might be the headline name, this is very much Anne's story. It's her ingenious nature that drives the story onward. There was a moment about halfway through that took my breath away so sharply that I had to rewind it several times just to be sure that I was seeing what I thought I was seeing. This flips and twists like a rattlesnake. It's beautifully done. And while you may think you have your suspicions from about the halfway mark, you are constantly confounded and bewildered by the script. It's a delicious guessing game. To top it all off, it's a Christmas story, too. Will Tom get his Christmas miracle in time? Will he be saved from the hands of the executioner in time for the holidays? You'll have to wait and see. B-grade pulp noirs don't often punch this well above their weight, but this is a gem. 1948's I Wouldn't Be In Your Shoes. Definitely worth checking out if you want to stay in Christmas land, but you want a break from all the glitter and tinsel for 71 breathless little minutes. And The Cheaters and I Wouldn't Be In Your Shoes are, of course, in my classic movie library right now if you want to rack them up for your Christmas season viewing. Just make sure you're signed up at patreon.com slash attaboysecrets. I've actually made a holiday classics playlist there featuring 26 Hollywood takes on Christmas time to keep you company throughout the month. Well, let's jet on off to Radioland again for another festive story, and in the best traditions of noir, we'll dip our toes into the shadows a little. We all have a ghost story at Christmas, right? This is a curio from the ever-masterful minds at Suspense. The singular tale of a parolee on the run who takes refuge in a mission hall at Christmas where he gets more than he bargained for. From suspense, this is Yuletide Miracle. Go ahead, laugh if you like. Only kids and old ladies believe in ghosts. Yeah, sure, that's what I thought too. Until I met a chubby little guy with hair like cotton candy who called himself Sir Benjamin. But first, let me fill in the details about my meeting with Sir Benjamin. I was in one of those Free Eats missions along the Bowery. I ducked in there to escape a parole officer named Brannigan. Brannigan was out to hand me a merry set of bracelets for Christmas when he caught me. The mission was empty. I had it all to myself. Except for a skinny young punk hacking out a cough that made the benches jump. Hey, 
<laughs> hey, kid, you're sick. Yeah. Yeah, I know. You need a doctor. I've had a doctor. I'm wearing hospital pajamas under this suit. Oh? Yeah. Yeah, I went down the fire escape to the street to here. I want to get home for Christmas, finally. I've been years making up my mind to it. Uh, uh, what, what, what are those boxes you're holding? Christmas presents for my mother, my sister Linda, my kid sister Linda. Hey, you like this? Oh, lady's gold watch, huh? Yeah, pins on a dress. Mm-hmm. I once stole my mother's watch and sold it. This, um, this squares it. Yeah. Uh, what's in the other box? Nylon stockings. My sister Linda's always had a... <coughs> Hey, hey, kid, now, come on, get hold of yourself, huh? <coughs> Come on, now. Hey, I can't get hold. Look, these presents. If you could get them to Mrs. B. Simmons for me, tell her that Tommy, her son, Tommy, Mrs. B. Simmons, Kid. Hey, kid. Come on, Tommy, get hold. The coughing stopped. And it was right then that Sir Benjamin, the chubby little ghost with hair like cotton candy, happened. The first I knew of him was magic, as if as if he was announcing himself. It was music coming from an upright piano on a platform way down the mission hall. A Christmas hymn. But look, until my eyes popped out of my head, I couldn't see anybody. The piano was going, but nobody I could see was playing it. I went up to the piano and reached over the stool to see how the trick was worked. And then my hands touched something solid, like, like somebody sitting on the stool. And then I saw fingers, hands, skipping along the keys. Only hands, as if they had a a life of their own. I don't know why, but I grabbed at them. That hurt. I bruise easily. Hey, I'm... I'm saying things, and now I'm hearing voices. My voice, Chris. You're hearing me. Well, where are you? Right here, my boy. What? Just be patient. And I'll rematerialize. It, uh, it takes a moment or two. I saw the hands build. First arms, then elbows, shoulders. And then a body. Slowly. And then the last thing. A head with little puffs of white hair. And then a face. A chubby face. Rosie and smile. Ah. Well, here I am. Every bit of me, I trust. Who are you? Sir Benjamin. I'm sorry if I worried you. Hey, that that trick, like like you were invisible. But I was invisible. Oh, come on, nobody can do that. I can. And that's only one of my powers. But first, suppose we get right down to business, Chris? We have business? Of course. That boy over there on the bench, 
Tommy Simmons. Oh, oh, the kid, yeah, you know, I almost forgot. He's lying there like dead. I don't dare go outside, but somebody's got to call an ambulance, do something. It's too late for Tommy. Well, now, we don't know that. We're not doctors. I know that. The problem now is, what are you going to do about his dying wish? What? Oh. Oh, you mean about delivering those presents to his family? It would be fine if you deliver those presents in person. Me? Hey, now, come off it, mister. It's not my job and it's none of my business. Besides, I... I got problems of my own. Brannigan? What? The parole officer? How did you know about Brannigan? (laughs) I'm a very versatile and talented ghost. I also have powers of conjuration. Come again. Turn the boy's dying wish aside... And I'll conjure up Brannigan. <laughs> you don't think I can? I don't think you even exist. How about that? I think I'm dreaming you up. Very well. I will demonstrate. Hold on to something, Chris. Conjuration is a very cataclysmic and strenuous business. You'll definitely be safer if you hold on to something. Don't ask me why, but I grabbed hold of the piano. That's a good thing I did, too, because the joint began to rock like an earthquake was hitting it. Yeah. I'm finished now. It's quite a job of conjuring. But uh, here's Brannigan. What? See? On the street? Peering through the plate glass window of the mission, watching you. Holy smoke. It is Brannigan. Hey, I gotta get out of here. I gotta find the back way up. Here, through this yard door. Quickly. I dived into the yard with Brannigan's police whistle blowing at me. The yard was a dead end. High building walls all around like a prison yard. No exit except a long, narrow alley to the street past Brannigan. I flattened in the shadows, a dead duck. I was listening to Brannigan shout orders at a couple of blue coats who'd come running when he whistled. Watch the exit, men, while I flush him out. D'Angelo, you're trapped. Better surrender peacefully. Do you hear me, D'Angelo? Trapped was the word, like a rat. Oh, a pity. <sighs> Too bad, Chris. What's the penalty for violation of parole? A year, maybe two. Oh, you were a big help showing me into the yard. Here I go, talking to myself. You're talking to me. I could really be a big help. Give up, D'Angelo. Don't make me take you the hard way. Think fast, Chris. You were to respect Tommy Simmons' dying wish. You were to go home for Christmas in his place. Okay, okay. If I was to, then what? Then Brannigan goes empty-handed. In order to catch you, he must first see you. Oh, sure, sure. Brannigan's suddenly going to go stone blind, huh? No. You are becoming... Invisible. It was a laugh. But the laugh was I was invisible. At least the Brannigan I was. He came right toward me with a flashlight in one hand and a gun in the other. Only he looked right through me as if he didn't see me. D'Angelo! I know you gotta be in this yard. I watched him search every inch. And then scratch his head and give up. Now, Chris, for your part of the bargain, here are Tommy's presents. 
go deliver them. Now, look. I'll leave here and only run into Brannigan outside somewhere. Now, what about that? You remain invisible until you've arrived at your destination. That is, as long as you remain faithful to your mission. Go, Chris. Okay, okay. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where am I going? Where do I find this Mrs. B. Simmons? Not far. Just a brief train ride to a neighboring town. The town, Chris, is Bethlehem. As Sir Benjamin had promised, it was a brief train ride. But funny, I felt like I'd come a long, long way. There was a deserted train shed with snow packed high. The station sign turned silver by the moon read Bethlehem. Not a soul in sight. Uh, no, no. There was someone. A girl. A girl in high boots, a snow hat, and the moon on her cheeks. She was coming toward me. Hello. Uh, hello. Are you Chris? Yeah, yeah, my name is Chris. I- I'm Linda. Linda Simmons. I came to drive you home. Just like that? Just like what? Well, I mean, no, no explanations. Like you knew I was here. And, and how come you know my name? Oh, I was told you were coming. And told your name, too. You were told? Somebody telephoned. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he telephoned. He, he wasn't kidding when he said he was a talented ghost. Hmm? Say... You, uh, you, you came right at me just now. That means you saw me. You can see me, huh? See you? Yeah, yeah. Face, hands, body, me. I'm a guy. You, you look at me and you see a guy. No. I cannot see you. <sighs> then I am invisible. No. It's just that I'm blind. Drive home. Let's take it now, huh? There was a horse-drawn sleigh around the side of the shed. Silver bells on the reins and a horse whose name had to be Dobbin. Uh, you drove this rig all the way here by yourself? Oh, you don't drive Dobbin. He knows every inch of the way to the Bethlehem station. You see, we've been coming here every night for years. Nice and slow and easy. Mm-hmm. I'd been running since I was born, and now I was asking myself, what for? A guy can't stay tough in a horse-drawn rig in the snow. And when Linda put her hand on mine, I opened my fist for the first time I could remember. cottage, nothing fancy, with a candle burning brightly in the window. Come in, Chris. Mother! Uh, Right here, Linda. Oh, uh, um, Mother, this is Chris. Welcome home, Chris. Oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's a nice place you got here, Mrs. Simmons. Oh, I'm so glad you like it. Yeah, I, uh, I don't exactly know how to say this, Mrs. Simmons. You see, I'm just a mug. I quit school the minute I learned how to tell the teacher off, so if I ain't got the right words... You don't have to have the right words, Chris. 
You don't even have to get it said. You see, I know. You know? About Tommy? Yes, all about Tommy. Well, well, how? Oh. Oh, there's somebody... Somebody talked to you on the phone, too, huh? Yes, somebody telephoned me. Mm. Well, well, the last thing the kid thought about was you and Linda and uh, coming home for Christmas. And he asked me to give you these. Uh, gold watch for you, Mrs. Simmons. And oh, Chris. These for you, Linda. Nylon stockings. Thank you. It's uh, nothing big, I guess, but Tommy didn't have much to give the way it was with him. You're wrong, Chris. Tommy had a great deal to give, and in his way, he gave it. I don't follow. A boy come home. Tommy couldn't come home himself, so he sent you to us, Chris. You can say about me that I was born in 1935 and I stopped crying in 1936 at the ripe old age of one. And you can say about me that I let a tear go I never knew I had. Christmas, 1961. Linda. Yes, Chris? Uh, don't get me wrong. You know, it's no crime being poor. Say it, Chris. Well... Well, it's, it's, it's like this. It's Christmas, but I don't see any tree. And I've been sniffing close enough to the kitchen to know there's nothing roasting in that oven. You, you're disappointed. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, is it all right if I borrow Dobbin outside? All right. Of course it's all right, Chris. <laughs> Put me down as a guy who never knows when to shut up. A tree and a turkey? Sure, lady. Nothing to it. Presto, Mephisto, I'm a magician. Here's your tree, lady, and here's your bird. <laughs> what? Quite a remarkable feat of magic, Chris. Presto, Mephisto, eh? <laughs> Sir Benjamin, I was wondering when you'd show up the kibitz. Uh, you, you are here, Sir Benjamin. Yes, but immaterially. And please don't ask me to rematerialize, Chris. I daren't show my face in Bethlehem. Why not? I lived here once before my uh, present situation. I wasn't very popular with my townspeople, I'm afraid. Oh, what they have against you? Bills. I died owing the butcher, the baker, and even the undertaker. Oh. <laughs> Let's get back to your problem. Yeah, a tree and a turkey, and it's your problem. I'm dumping it right into your lap. You got me into this in the first place. I see. Have you any money? Not a plug nickel, and even if I had, the town is shut tight. But you're a talented ghost. A tree and a turkey ought to be a cinch. You got any ideas on it, Sir Benjamin? Only one. My customary way of acquiring necessary things while I was alive. Your customary way? Credit, Chris. And I hope never to be a borrower again. But I suppose it can't be helped. And, uh... Just where do we borrow this tree in Turkey? From Uncle Kale's poultry farm. It's just past the merchant's bank a short drive. Well, I'm a stranger here. Move over. I'll take the reins. Get there. There aren't any ghosts, and call me crazy, but Sir Benjamin drove the rig at a smart clip to a farm stacked with freshly cut trees. Take your pick of tree and carry it to the rig. And Chris. Yeah, what? No uh, unnecessary disturbance. I owe Uncle Kale a formidable bill already. I threw the tree on the rig and went back. Sir Benjamin was coming out of a poultry house carrying a great big fat turkey. There's a job persuading this feathered fellow. Here, 
Take the leash and be on your way. Well, wait a minute. Where are you going? To leave a receipt for Uncle Kale for one tree and one turkey. <laughs> I'd sure like to be there when he reads it. So would I, Chris. So would I. I hurried back to the rig, right into the arms of trouble. Brannigan. Hello, D'Angelo. What? Uh, run and you won't get ten yards. Okay, okay. What did you do, look into a crystal ball to find out where I was? I didn't have to. I just took the same train you took. Ah, oh, baloney. You had to see me to be able to do that. I had to see you. What were you, invisible or something? Sure, sure, I was invisible. <laughs> D'Angelo, you killed me. Invisible. Oh, yeah? All right, what about me yard behind the mission? You walked right past me. You played your flash right on me, but you couldn't see me. How about that? I'll answer that one. Maybe I didn't see you because I didn't want to see you. And now what? That's the truth, D'Angelo. I didn't want to catch you. I had to make noises like wanting to because I'm a cop. But I didn't want to make the arrest. Not on Christmas, D'Angelo. Yeah. Well, you're making the arrest now. Maybe I'm not. But why'd you tell me all the way here? To see what you were up to. To see if you really had a heart. Yeah. So, you're bringing the Simmons a tree and a turkey. Well, now, how do you know about the Simmons? I knew Tommy Simmons. I saw him pass you those presents in the mission before he died. I phoned Mrs. Simmons and Linda that you were coming. If, if, if it was you who telephoned? Me, sure. Who'd you think? What's it? I thought Sir Benjamin. You thought who, D'Angelo? Never mind. Skip it. Hmm. Now, I'll ask one question, and then maybe I'll leave. Now, think carefully before you answer. Go ahead. Go ahead. Ask. If I arrange for you to keep in touch with the parole officer by mail, providing those letters were postmarked Bethlehem, would you... Would you like it that way? Would I? Brandon, where else does a guy want to write letters from but home? That's almost all there is to the story of Sir Benjamin, me, Brannigan, Mrs. Simmons, and Linda. And we had to take the door down to get the tree into the house, and we had to find an extra stomach apiece to accommodate the turkey. And then later, with the fire going and the lights down low, Linda and I sat dreaming on the sofa. I had my fist open for keeps, and her hand was right in mine, like it belonged there. It's been a perfectly wonderful Christmas, Chris. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. <laughs> and thanks to you, we had a tree and a turkey. Well, well, thanks to me. Now, the tree and the turkey wasn't my trick. The tree and the turkey were? Mm -hmm. Chris, what are you saying? No, no, really, the thanks goes to another guy. A chubby little guy who sure has a talent for getting what he wants. His name's Sir Benjamin. Sir Benjamin? <laughs> yeah, why? Well, the... The coincidence of, of, of names. Well, I used to call my father Sir Benjamin in play. Oh, we'd play Lord and Lady. My father and I, he'd call me Princess Linda, and I'd call him Sir Benjamin. The coincidence of names, you said, huh? Linda, suppose... Suppose it isn't a coincidence. But... But my father died years ago. Yeah, so did my Sir Benjamin. <laughs> 
Uh, the guy I'm talking about is a ghost. A ghost? Yeah. A ghost like I met in a mission when your brother Tommy died. All of a sudden, a piano started going. Piano music, but nobody I could see was playing. Chris? Huh? Our piano is playing. Yeah. Yeah, so it is. Hey, you want to bet it's Sir Benjamin? Bet, but how, how can you prove it? Well, easy. I toss a turkey wing at the piano stool. I bet you Sir Benjamin lets out a yell and complains about how easily he bruises. Do we bet? What will we bet, Chris? A kiss. That way, Linda, nobody loses. Sadly, is where we must part for this Christmas special. Thank you very much for joining me. Remember, if you'd like more of these shows, including over a hundred bonus review shows, a weekly film club night, more Christmas bonuses than you can shake a stick at, plus much, much more, as well as access to my classic movie library, then you can have all of it by signing up at patreon.com slash attaboysecret. Very simple to do, takes no time at all, and I'll be there to welcome you along to a world of old Hollywood goodness. Just go on over to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this very episode. And my special thanks to those of you who have done so. You make these and every other show I make possible with your generosity and your goodwill. So thank you very much indeed. I greatly appreciate it. I hope that wherever you are, you have the happiest of holidays ahead. I'll be back with you in the new year, but until then, have a very Merry Christmas, a very Happy New Year. Take care of yourselves and those you love. Happy holidays and bye for now.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.